So these soothing sounds we're hearing right now are not intended for adults. No, this record is for fucking this babies. Is, yeah, this this album's called Soothing Sounds for Baby, Volume One. And where'd you find this, Dan? So I found this. Um, I sh- I share my studio uh, with with my friend Andy and his partner, and who's a baby? Yeah, Andy, who's a giant baby. Yeah. <laughs> he's a. This is the shit he listens to. He's on his a gigantized baby, and when he's not pooping himself and crying, he just throws this on, just to wind himself down a bit. Don't Andy? Uh, Andy has a baby, and the baby has been at the studio. Um, and the other day, he was like, "I picked this record up at the thrift store, uh, threw it on, and we were just kind of like, I don't know. It was surprising at how how um, creative and advanced this music seemed." Yeah, and just so bizarre to market it as soothing sounds for baby in the first place. Yeah, and it's definitely like if you uh, if you look up the album art, um, it definitely looks like like a piece of uh, you know like psychological technology, like something that was popular in the in the late fifties, early sixties. You know, you could sort of the early mind hack idea. You know, it's all very scientific. It's better thinking through science. Yes. Yeah. It uh, comes with a special informative booklet by the Gisell uh, Institute for Child Development. You know? Yeah, and that's written in huge letters on the front, almost as big as the title. Mm-hmm. This is volume one for uh, one to six months. If you're over six months, you can't listen to this. Turn it off. Yeah. Turn it off now. Yeah, turn it off now. If you're over six months, it uh, it's actually has a different purpose. It's just all MK Ultra implant. Yeah, it's like nearly the right time, right? What is this one's like sixty one? Oh, oh yeah, it's right on the money. It's like sixty two, sixty three, sixty four. I think the series was released. Volume oh. three is a guest spot from the Goldwaters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like such interesting music to think that this is what babies uh, would benefit from listening to. And if, like, on the Wikipedia for the Gazelle Institute, it's some, like, nonprofit uh, that um, made materials to educate childcare professionals on, like, how to, or the principles of child development or whatever. But it just had to be bullshit, right? Because this has clearly nothing to do with, like, child development in any way. I can't imagine. No, I, th- I think this era was just, like, a golden age for. Um, I don't want to say grifters because I really feel like these people believed in what they were doing, but it was like a golden age for for yeah. um, for people to come in with like any batshit crazy idea about like uh, the mind as like uh, as like a system you could reprogram, you know? Yeah, I guess it's just the kind of like pseudoscience that happens when a field is just forming. Mm-hmm. And you're just like throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah, and there was there was a lot of energy behind it, and there was also a lot of uh, there was a lot of intelligence uh, money behind behind these institutes. So I don't know. Yeah, but thinking from the perspective of Raymond Scott, who made this, it's such an ideal opportunity to experiment with early electronic music, like he wanted to do, and get a bunch of funding for it, and release it in a very bizarre way that just allows him to like experiment freely yeah yeah absolutely and this was like not a big hit this was not well received by the public (laughs) yeah and that's what's so interesting is like i wikipedia'd him based entirely on this and was wondering like 
if his niche was um, baby music or novelty music or what. Like, I c- you could never really guess from this one thing, but the answer is way more interesting than any of us were expecting. That's right. Uh, he's actually, like, pretty much the main guy who Carl Stalling used his compositions for Looney Tunes. And then because of that, his music was used on Ren and Stimpy, The Simpsons, uh, Animaniacs, like a whole bunch of cartoons. Even though he never composed music for cartoons, except for like some commercials. But his actual legacy is weirdly like cartoon music, despite not doing it himself. And then his career before he started making this early 60s electronic music was like swing music, um and being like a band leader for CBS radio. So it's a very like insane and bizarre life arc, you know? Yeah. Yeah. To go from uh, like straight comp, like he went to Juilliard um, in 1931 and studied piano and composition and then became a band director. And then you can, I, I mean, over his career, you can kind of see him. I feel like he's like, dipping his toes into different um, musical endeavors, kind of mastering them and then moving on, you know, like pushing himself further. So by the time, he, by yeah. the time you get to like 1946, he's, he started this Manhattan, uh, what is it called? The Manhattan Institute or Manhattan research, Manhattan research. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a different thing. That, that is a different thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did not start the Manhattan Institute. He did not start the Manhattan project. Um, but as yeah, far as we know. As far as we know. He did do some advertising for IBM. We don't know how deep he was. But yeah, he gets into like... I mean, he's he's claims to be the person that invented the polyphonic sequencer, uh, which is really, really cool, and would have been way ahead of uh, the next person that claimed to invent the polyphonic sequencer. Yeah, and actually the soothing sounds for Baby we're listening right now... Uh, used heavily a couple of his instruments called the clavivox and the electronium <laughs> so this was really his like chance to just show off the instruments he made up you know it reminds me a lot of telstar and the guy who made that oh yeah joe meek he ended up just like shooting his mom or something he went nuts yeah but he he was also like a synth pioneer and it was like the the sound of it was very similar i don't know if it's because they were they crossed paths at some point or if that was just the limitations of the technology but there's this very cool synth tone that you only hear in like early 60s stuff i yeah i honestly think i think it's like the limitations of the technology i think that's it like you know in the post-war period you had all this basically military test equipment right like um uh filters uh rangefinders like like stacks and I, I don't know if anyone if you guys have ever watched that german guy Heinbach's uh youtube channel but he he makes music with a lot of this like that era of test equipment and it has a really specific sound like the oscillators sound like raw and kind of fuzzy and um the reverbs sound really wild and kind of out of control and yeah i think it i think it comes from that like pre like microprocessor pre micronization of components like these are just like stacks of giant equipment rigged together yeah it's a great sound yeah it rules but i mean maybe we should kind of give an overview of this guy's uh arc you know where his real name was harry warnow but he took up the name raymond scott because 
Uh, he got a job at CBS Radio from his older brother, and he was embarrassed that it was like a nepotism thing, so he changed his name. Raymond Scott is a but, very um, is a very uh, like I'm using an assumed name name. Yeah, totally. Like witness protection program. Yeah, shit. yeah, guy incognito. But I love this. Like you know, he got he like. There's a lot of parts of his uh, like 20s and 30s or whatever where CBS is like his main paycheck. But uh, once he was sort of known for that. He started a band called Raymond Scott Quintet that had six members. And he has a thing like, when asked about it, he's like, well, if I call it a sextet, it might take your mind off music, you know? <laughs> I don't want to get the audience rock hard. Yeah, that's right. But that yeah. kind of verbiage. <laughs> but to his credit, he was the first uh, band leader to integrate like the CBS radio band because he insisted on just choosing whatever musicians he wanted. So he chose musicians from, you know, just whatever race, you know, across the board, if they were good, you know? So that's very cool. And also, actually, the way he composed, I think, is, like, very ahead of its time in that this is how, like, every fucking rock band works, where he would never write his compositions down. He just, like, learned about very early recording technology. So, like, in the late 30s, him and his band would just practice and record their practices and then he would build the compositions out of the recordings and never actually notate them. And then once they decided the song was good enough, they just record it. And they're like, this recording is how you play it. And there's no notation. You just listen and figure so, it out. Wow. You know? That's insane. So they did it all by ear, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That rules. Like that's, I think, I feel like it takes till the sixties for that to become like the true norm in like popular music. Mm-hmm. I like his idea of like descriptive music too. It seems like he's, like even before he started working for commercial, um, like doing commercials, he he was he was writing from like a a, a concept, bumpy weather over yeah. New York, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, New Year's Eve in a haunted house, just weird vibes for his songs. Yeah, vibe-based composition. I'm fully into that. I practice that as much That's as. That's why it lends itself so well to cartoons. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I don't think we've mentioned the bell. That's the most distinctive part of this. That little tinkling bell? Like the... Yeah. The doopy doopy doop, that one? I don't know if the rationale for that is to, like, instill a sense of rhythm into the baby, or if that was just, like, how they thought it should sound. But it's it's pretty loud. It's, I Okay. Yeah, it really is. It's the I, least actually, soothing element here. I have a memory uh, of listening to this at the studio, because... Andy has speakers wired up in like in the control room, but also in the kitchen. And I was in the kitchen making some coffee, and that be- I thought Andy had his phone going through the uh, going through the speakers, basically, because all I could hear was the bell. <laughs> it, it sounds does... like an alarm. Yeah, it sounds like an alarm. I mean, is this supposed to wake the baby up, or the baby on the cover looks very awake? Yeah, frighteningly awake. He looks like a like a drawing from the Fallout games. He looks like he's ready to start some shit. <laughs> Nuclear age optimism. Yeah, this seems more like binaural beats for baby rather than like soothing sounds. Oh god, we could talk about those. People think those can like do surgeries on you. In a, like people listen to an hour of binaural beats, which is just like a tone generated in audacity, like a yeah. phaser on it. Yep. And it'll be titled, like, Make Your Penis Bigger. <laughs> this is coming from the same place that a lot of this 
you know 1960s research is coming from the like the yeah the idea that you can you can hack your brain and body you know that it is like a a system that receives input and will change which i guess is true to a certain extent but it's not going to make your dick bigger like yeah <laughs> even back then people had this need to make entertainment educational or like somehow make like the constant intake of information that was like fully flowering by that point like trying to rationalize some way where it's actually good for you yeah like it's it's like having a side salad with your schnitzel or whatever you know you're like oh it's good it's healthy it's good for me <laughs> instead of just like these are cool sounds i would like to listen to and enjoy just purely on an aesthetic level yeah it's like practice that you have to do i'm listening to my soothing sounds mm-hmm Oh wow! Is another song about to start on here? Oh shit! This this totally reminds me of um, Harmonium, that uh, or sorry, Harmonia, that crap uh, rock band. Yeah, it's got the same vibes. Yeah, I can see that actually, and uh, cause Brian Eno recorded all their albums, right, or a bunch yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, and he was in Cluster briefly, or no, he, yeah, I think he he did a collaboration with Cluster. It's funny because uh, I think you're right on the money where when you go to the Soothing Sounds for a Baby Wikipedia, uh, the only artists that compares this album to are Brian Eno, Kraftwerk, and Tangerine Dream. There you go. Despite having uh, predated such artists by more than a decade. So, like, yeah, they also make music sense. for babies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, I wasn't sure that there was ever going to be a second composition on here. I thought it was going to go on forever. This part's more soothing, because there's no bell. Yeah. There's kind of a... He had to open with a bang. There's kind of a mid-frequency gong sound that I feel like is going to go through the entire thing, which I like. I was familiar with a couple tracks by him called Portofino 1 and Portofino 2 that I found when I was into lounge music a couple months ago. Yeah, we'll have to get to those. That was a brief... a brief fad in the 60s that sound that like now the only remnant of it really is like the instrumentals on pet sounds yep space age bachelor pad music that's what it that's what it was for it was like a there was like a weird intersection of like the stuff that raymond scott was doing and stuff that joe meek was doing that was kind of modernist and then tiki music you know like like uh whatever quote-unquote travel drumming and I, it's kind of like a weird fascinating intersection of those two things yeah yeah people came back to that in the 80s with yeah. like the uh the ultra modernist sounds mixed with uh like african or afrobeat rhythms like peter gabriel and um i guess the talking heads maybe yep definitely i mean and it kind of spilled out into pop music. Um, man, I guess uh, I guess you could even say some of the Paul Simon stuff. Oh, That's, yeah, that. But that wasn't really... Well, I guess you could call her My Name is Al or whatever that song is. Yeah. It's like sort of modern, but not aggressively so. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing super futuristic about it. It's definitely not like... Um, Zimbra or whatever from Fear of Music, you know. Yeah. But like, yeah, and then and then lounge music. Uh, Dev and I were talking about this last night. Like, 
because we were listening to Chibo Mato. Uh, lounge music made like a mega comeback in the 90s, but not as a touchstone for like further exploration, but as like a first kind of wave of nostalgia. Like that was that was kind of a post grunge thing, like post 1995. Like I feel like Beck Beck sort of got swept up in that. Um, people started using lounge samples. Smash Mouth. Totally. Oh yeah, Astro, Astro Lounge. Lounge. Their big cover or their big album had that uh, cover that was like that sort of nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, which is. I don't so- know if they tapped into the sound at all in that album. It's so weird to have, you know, like something that's that was invented to be kind of like proto-environmental music, almost like the proto-version of like the Japanese environmental music of the 80s, like mood-setting music, which is kind of a very futuristic concept, modernist concept, and then to have it return as like waka-waka nostalgia, you know? Like, it's almost like one of the first, like, irony... The, the first emergences of irony in uh, music. Yeah. Like the 90s use of it. For sure. Man, I didn't expect the second composition to be so short after that long banger that kicked it off. This rules. I'm pretty soothed. I'm very soothed by this. Yeah, this one bangs a little more than the second song, though. Might be waking the babies up who fell asleep in the last one. Got some tape delay going on there. How come Barney never used any of these melodies? Or the recording techniques? Yeah. The guy who did the music for Barney is still alive. We could show him this. And it could blow his mind. <laughs> it would be like when Radiohead found Aphex Twin. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's going he's gonna to like rediscover his love of composing for children's TV. And Barney can finally make his kid A. Yeah. Have a Barney reboot where it's all... Uh, Obscure, weird electronic shit. Borderline RPG, uh, walking through the village, uh, going to the potion shop music. Oh, yeah, it totally is. Yeah, JRPG music is also baby music by these standards. It's all baby music. Yeah. Well, like Alex said earlier, Eno, baby music. Tangerine Dream, baby music. Craftwork, baby music. The Beatles, music for babies. Yeah, absolutely. We've established that. Oh, something I wish I had found a song from this uh, maybe like the only period of his stuff I didn't uh, remember to look up is that in the 40s after he was doing his sort of uh, swing inspired stuff he had a 13 piece orchestra that did silent music of like music with little or no sound I guess kind of like the John Cage you know the famous uh, like 433 but I don't know actually what his like version of that was wow that's kind of insane. 1941? <laughs> yeah. Like he's definitely like a, a huge pioneer. It's really interesting. Yeah, he never really crossed over that much, I guess. Like, he died pretty broke. Yeah. In 1994. Because got... I guess Looney Tunes had slowed down by then. He didn't really have sources of income. But... Like, he... I don't think he got most of those royalties because he sold all the publishing rights to Warner Brothers in the early 40s, and that's why they used them, because they owned all the publishing Ooh. rights and shit. Damn. Yeah. If he had been born a little later, he probably could have found success again. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, like once he was rediscovered. Yeah, it happened yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, like right when he died. 
he got increasingly paranoid too. Uh, you know, after he started doing electronic music, that people were people were basically ripping him off, and I think he's right. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, totally. I think he was right to be paranoid. You think we should cut away from the baby music here and uh, get to a few from uh, throughout his career? Yeah, yeah, this is childish. Yeah, this is just childish yeah. to me. All right, let's go listen to the toy trumpet here. It said this is one of his best-known melodies, but I didn't even listen to it yet, so we'll find out whether that's true or not. Okay. Even the album cover of this album has him behind, like, the CBS radio mic microphone, you know? It's called Reckless, Reckless Nights and Turkish Twilights. This sounds vaguely familiar. It's on like his way towards sounding like Looney Tunes, you know, like you can see the kind of playfulness of like the lead trumpet and whatever. Mm -hmm. This guy is basically a Pinchon character, I'm realizing. <laughs> like he's like a real life Pinchon character. Yeah, the assumed name. Yeah. Uh, Bizarre Arc. Bizarre Arc experimenting with like uh, a 14 piece silent orchestra, uh, you know, using test equipment to make early electronic music. Yeah. A, that is a muted trumpet going on there. Yeah. Sounds like a mere toy. <laughs> like, I don't think I recognize this, but it says that this melody was used a lot like in those years. Like Shirley Temple sang a lyrical version of this shit. People used to be so stupid that they were entertained by Shirley Temple. <laughs> it's true. Speaking of uh, things for babies. Yeah, that shit's for babies. Our brain volume was so much smaller back then. Gotta mix it up. That one little cymbal cra crash was also also very Looney Tunes. Really trying hard not to jitterbug here, fellas. I wonder what it was like yeah. recording music like this. If you were like a serious musician, <laughs> like an old musician who like performed with Gustav Mahler. Yeah. And then you get called in to do this, and it's like. You're going to be scraping a brush on a, on like a washboard. It's just like every generation of music uh, changing though, where it's just like the older generation is like, this new stuff sucks. It's so simplistic, yeah. you know? Look, man, we know you're a big deal down in the Mahler orchestra pit, but what we need you to do is we need you to put this slide whistle in your mouth and slowly pull the plunger out. Yeah. You think you can handle that genius? This cartoon yeah, he's, music... He's it's ruining the minds of our youth. 
Yeah, no wonder they like Shirley Temple so much. All these unsophisticated morons. Their brains are being spoiled with all these fancy sound effects. They don't want to listen to cool (laughs) shit. It's true. You know, I... You know, when I was a kid, I could listen to music and I didn't need a big spring going wow, 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 or a car horn or like ducks quacking. Man, And then for people in our generations, it's just like, I can't imagine music without ducks quacking over yeah. it. Well, I guess I guess it was really Pink Floyd that brought the sort of playful um, childishness of, of those sounds back, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like Sid Barrett shit. My favorite track on animals is ducks. <laughs> that was where they really introduced that new sound to the world Yeah, Animals has 120 tracks on it And they're just cows, horses, ducks It came with like a speak and spell uh, version <laughs> yeah. Deluxe edition Some of them are just like pretty niche Like rainbow trout Yeah Did, did you yeah. need to make that? It was a B-side Also, I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed But the ox track is like completely indistinguishable from the cow track. I think they're just like cutting <laughs> corners. They could only afford to bring so many animals into the studio that day, so they're just like, eh, no one will notice. Yeah. Alligator, crocodile, they two for shifted, one. They pitch shifted the cow just a little bit for the ox, and they're like, yeah, it'll be fine. Now in the modern era, we have What Does the Fox Say, which combines all of them into one song, which I think kind of ruins the experience. Yeah, there's no sense of wonder, you know. Your imagination doesn't get to fill in the blanks. There's no build-up. There's no release. Should we listen to something good? Like, really good? Like a banger? Yeah. I'm in a factory that makes bowling balls, and I wish there was some music that could soundtrack <laughs> yeah. this hmm. experience. Let's see. Maybe there is. Here we go. It's interesting, though, the tempo of this is, like, noticeably slower than what we're used to in Looney Tunes. And that's clearly just like Carl Stalling just interpreting it how he wants to, I guess. Great bowling ball music factory. I'm dropping them all over the place. It's just too oh, hectic no. in here. It's very slapstick right now. There's ducks quacking all over the factory, too. Who left all these banana peels here? It's very dangerous. I, I better go out on this single uh, suspended beam and go pick them up all very carefully. I have to assume that even when he was like the CBS radio band leader, that some people thought this shit was really abrasive, right? Like, if you're thinking about like pre Looney Tunes and this just being re- used for like some radio drama, it probably seemed very weird even for that. Yeah. Probably people born in, like, the 1880s reacted to this the way, like, boomers reacted to Marilyn Manson. Like, we need to put this guy in jail. (laughs) Uh, Here we go. Now we get to that main hook. The part that just goes. That classic theme. This is the part, Alex, where after you dropped all those bowling balls, now you're on a conveyor belt and you're getting spanked by a machine for messing up. Your boss is uh, viewing you from a from an office high above the shop floor, chopping a cigar and laughing, holding his belly. <laughs> yeah. 
It's an interesting song I've fallen structure into too. a box and I'm being swept along a conveyor belt <laughs> as though I'm one of the products themselves. Yeah, you're a new bowling ball. I'm getting shined up. There's some machine... Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say there's some machines like waxing you up. The song structure is really interesting where like they don't even really try to have any kind of like uh, harmonic progression between the two parts. Part one just kind of stops and then part two starts. Yep. And then it just goes right back to... Not unlike, the, not unlike the mechanized process of a factory. You know? Yeah. It feels like cartoon music. Musical assembly line. Yeah, so there's a really interesting opening open question whether um, Carl Stalling, because he used, uh, according to Wikipedia and, and also to uh, RaymondScott.net, um, Carl Stalling used uh, Raymond Scott's compositions in like 120 different Looney Tunes cartoons. And it's unknown whether Stalling asked Warner Brothers to acquire this music in order to use it there or if he just randomly found it in their catalog and started using mm. it. And then just no one ever cared enough to ask him either of them before they died. Cause like no one gave a shit. So no one actually knows the answer of like how he got into using it or where he found it or what, you know? Damn. Like it does seem like it's natural to use it for cartoons, but like it must have been some thought of Carl Stallings. Like, Oh, what if I did this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. This next one is like the next period of his life. This is into the fifties. And this stuff like really failed pretty hard for him where I guess he was trying to do like Les Paul-esque uh, more kind of like pop compositions, I guess, with vocals. So he had his wife sing over like his composition here. And I think he had like absolutely no success with this. And that's when he moved on to just purely electronic music. But let's check this one it's out. Like, it's like multi-tracked, right? So he was, he was contemporaneously... Um experimenting with multi-track vocals like yeah like i really do think it's that um early interest in just recording technology that led him to electronic music you know yeah like even from the 30s he was much better at recording than like most musicians are like he was both engineer and musician from the start basically mm -hmm. the album gatefold is great it's amazing like a teal couch Two people dressed up in their living room, just lounging. It's super oversaturated colors. It's beautiful. For a three-minute vocal song, it's insane that they've already waited a whole minute to bring in the vocals. Yeah, he's he's got a very particular way of structuring things. Yeah. Oh man, that's a there's a great shot of him in the studio with his wife and he's bent over uh like a just like early recording equipment sci-fi panel. Yeah, even that stuff looks cartoonish. Yeah. It is seriously a vision of the future there. <laughs> yeah. Isn't this a vocal song? It is. I, I skimmed through it earlier. It eventually comes in. It's more than half over. 
Yeah, there we go. It's insane to wait that long. This is probably the most generic thing of his that we'll listen to all day. Yeah, not terribly interesting. Seems like he was just trying to do what was popular in the late 50s and then just had no success with it. I wonder if I wonder if he had like an insane home recording setup. Yeah, that's a good question. The arrangement is weird because it's a very pedestrian arrangement for the time. You think with all those knobs, yeah. he would have created something weird and otherworldly. Like the soothing sounds for baby. Yeah. Yeah. That's only a few that's like three or four years later. It's not that far. That's what makes me think that he was really trying to like cash in on like a pop hit here. Then mm. I have the vocals come in earlier. Don't know yeah, what to tell like a you. A minute and a half earlier. Yeah. yeah, there's one kind of criticism there. Oh, wow, what an ending. Yeah. <laughs> I have a theory about song endings, um, and that's uh, you can end on a major key, which is kind of doing like a ta-da type thing, or you can end on a minor key, which is like a womp womp, sad kind of thing. Or you can do what he just did, which is sort of a question mark. Yeah. Or the so classic like, six my favorite, chord. Yeah. My favorite example of the very major, like the shittiest way you can do a really cheesy major ending is the... Yes. Oh yeah. Exactly. I love it. I think all those can be done on so many irony levels and it's hard to tell. Because those things have been cycled <laughs> yeah. so like so many times for the last hundred years. So like I don't know if it's lame or ironic or what when someone ends a song like da 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 I think it's yeah, it's always one or the Imagine other. Imagine being the guy that came up it with can't that. Can't be cool. The person that came up with that. Like, yeah. who are you? Oh, I'm a musician. Oh, what do you do? Uh, have you heard this? Dun, 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 dun. Bump. I wrote yeah. that. <laughs> he wrote five albums that all end every song like that. And at the time, everyone's mind was blown. Like, they're just waiting for yeah. it, you know? Is he going to do it? He only had the ending. That was the problem. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> where you bring the producer in. You kind of develop stuff in the studio, you know, flesh it out. That's the, the song seed. would just be like one, two, three, four, da 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 da. <laughs> yeah, which is the opposite of the beginning of old time rock and roll, you know. The dun 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 no no. That's that yeah. song. When they wrote that song, that's the only thing they had written. They went into the studio with just that, and they had to build a whole song around it. I always interpreted that as a warning signal, so you can turn the channel to a different uh, channel. <laughs> See, before you have to hear Bob Seger. What about the... Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. <laughs> That's enough. You know, like the, just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. What if you just had that intro with like the classic outro we're talking about, where it's just like... What if the song went... be a good song. What if the song went... dun 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 and that's it. There's your song. Just give me some of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can fit a lot of those on a record. He would have 50 of those on a 7-inch. Yes. 
Great bang for your buck. It's like the NES cartridges that have 100 games in one. Yeah. And none like, of them work. Yeah. It's like the... D- it's the don't bore us, get to the chorus thing, but for the beginning and the end of songs. You, like, you know, in Mario, when you die and it's like, yes, that's like just another take on the, like, it is that kind of same little, like, uh, exclamation point, you know? Yeah. I feel like after the, the Mario death variation, like that musical theme hasn't really been explored. And I think there's room to do a third, you know? Oh Yeah. Or we can even take the main Mario theme and add this ending we're talking about, like dun 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 ba dun bum ba dun bum boom. It's too bad it's so hard to do a sad trombone. Yeah. That would be a great ending to a sad song. Only Scott. That seems like something the Animal Collective should sample and then just put like a million layers of effects on it. Yes. But I think chronologically now we're into the same era as um, the baby stuff. This one's uh, Portofino 1 that Alex was talking about earlier. Here we go. This one's super cool. I really like this one. New plastic sounds and electronic abstractions. I love this. The sequencing is kind of fucked. Like it's not. There's a little hiccup in the timing, and it just makes it very dreamlike. Yeah. It really is just a more actively songy version of the baby stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, he's just trying to create a better groove. I mean, it really is. Very Eno-ish, for sure. Very ahead of its time. Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like for electronic music, at least coming out of America, it's interesting that Raymond Scott and the other person who really pushed the medium forward, Susan Ciani, are both both were working in the commercial field, you know? like. Yeah. I mean, you just have to have that paycheck, I think, coming in in order to fuck around with this stuff. Yeah, at least at that point, definitely. And we hadn't read. I guess we hadn't reached historically the point where, like, if like, if you're kind of a trust fund kid, you just you just spend twenty thousand dollars on a giant modular system that you turn yeah. on once in a while. Very true. Yeah, it fucking sucks. I love that. Yeah, I love uh, like the mix of just like brute commercial, com- like material commercialism and and actual innovation. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And another interesting fact we haven't mentioned yet is that Bob Moog met uh, Raymond Scott in the 1950s and was like 25 years younger than him. So he considers uh, Scott like a big influence on Moog. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I really want to know how he made these sounds. Like, I'm assuming it's all test equipment. It's all like vacuum tube test equipment that he wired up and sequenced. Mark Mothersbaugh owns one of the machines. Oh, interesting. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if it works. Should let's put on uh, Portofino 2 while we're at it. Mark Mothersbaugh kind of had a opposite uh, career where he s- started as like a weird proto-punk and then got commercial success and then and then got respect as like an electronic music soundtrack composer. And then made music for babies. And then literally made music for babies. 
That was my first exposure to him, was the Rugrats theme. No shit. This is great. This is uh, more RPG. Like, I'm imagining um, you're, you, you took the airship to the jungle island and you're exploring around. Things aren't too stressful yet. Yeah. There's no. There's not a lot of random encounters. You're just. You're just kind of cruising. I came upon this a while ago, and I was looking around for other stuff that sounds like this, but nothing really does. I was hoping I stumbled upon like, uh, like an uncovered genre of stuff that sounded like this. I wonder. What's this album even called? Is it called New Plastic Sounds and Electronic Abstractions, or is it just called Manhattan Research Inc.? It's, a it's not com- even clear on the It's cover. a compilation. It's like a posthumous compilation of, um, of of just all of his commercial work and like experiments, basically. Cool. I'm going to have to get this. Yeah, I love this. Um, I, I think there's a British strain of this going on like slightly later maybe half a decade or a decade delayed with like um Daphne Worm and and like and, and and those people you know like the BBC radiophonic stuff is to me kind of it's like the thing that came after but it's so British yeah it doesn't I've, I've heard you talk about that stuff but I'm not really that familiar with it so it's like a group of group of people that you know were given um state money to set up an electronic music uh laboratory and kind of and and do foley and soundtrack work for bbc productions like the doctor who theme came out of that group and um and yeah i mean they were a little more experimental than that there's less of like a commercial playful popness to their stuff but yeah. uh, but it's definitely definitely seems like the same vibe to me. People just experimenting, like given the space to experiment, just go buck wild. I guess like broad broadcast kind of has this feeling too. Yeah, I can see that. It's crazy that so much was made of just taking elements out of this. Yeah, like it was yeah. all there, and you just have to take a few things away, and you get craft work. Yeah, you can create a whole genre out of like one element of this, like the the um, steppy kind of baseline of the, the Portofino one. You know, that's like early craft work. I think I'll throw on um, "Soothing Sounds for Babies" Volume Two here. Six to twelve months. But, uh, yeah, this is for a little more advanced here. This just straight up sounds like um, drum loops from um, another green world. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It sounds like St. Elmo's fire. Yeah, this is just... Eno was all about this soothing sounds for baby, apparently. He's telling on himself. This he listens melody? to music for babies. Yeah, I'm going to exactly. clown on him. Dude, what are, you, what about, are you listening to in your free time? I'm about to do something radical. I'm only listening to music for babies. <laughs> The melody sounds like something that like Soldier Boy would have rapped over in 2007, <laughs> or like that type of oh, rapper, yeah. like ringtone rap. Let's your chain hang low. Exactly, yeah, it's exactly yeah. like chain hang low. Cha-ching. It sounds a little bit like that Yellow Magic Orchestra sample that Mariah Carey and Jennifer Lopez fought over. Oh, it's true, yeah. 
1962. Crazy. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Maybe we should go a little bit more chronologically through his life here, because, yeah, this is still early 60s, but then in the late 60s, basically all he wanted to do was work on his, like, electronic instruments, and somehow he came across, um, like, some, uh, Barry Gordy from Motown and convinced him to just, like, put him on the Motown payroll, like, researching electronic instruments, and then he just never completed anything for them and just kept working. So what? I think that's the beginning of like his uh, commercial or sort of like financial downfall where he just continued tinkering on this shit till like the end of his life and never really made much music anymore. Yeah, he was like fussing in the basement. But I think his white whale was um, the thing that Barry Gordy um, got in touch with him for, which was the uh, what was it called? The electron, the, the electronium. Yeah, which is it. which is really interesting. It's uh he. He was experimenting with photo cells and uh, like more and more complex sequencing. And his idea was to build a a machine that would self uh, an instrument that would self generate music. It would be he called it artificial intelligence, right? But this is probably a primitive generative sequen sequencer that yeah. was like locked to maybe like bass mids and a lead or something. Which is something that, like, ten years later, people would start putting together. Like, like Don Bukla would would kind of develop that with like elements of like the Bukla system, you know. And then yet another Eno crossover, though, is Eno sometime in the last decade made an app that does that. Bloom. And then yeah. the yeah, the way it generates is based on like seasons and things like that, and you can like tap things, right? But like that's another example of Eno just doing the exact kind of shit that he wanted to do. I have a I have a module in my I've got like a small rack mount modular and there's a module uh called Marbles that's uh definitely based on like some of Raymond Scott's like early experiments where it just you set it to a key and it is just constantly generating melodies. And you can freeze if you hear something you like. You can freeze it, but it's like super primitive switching technology. But I could yeah, that's interesting. But I could see how like Barry Gordon would be, or Barry Gordy would be like, "Oh, this this guy has invented a machine that writes songs." We can, yeah. <laughs> I mean, who's to like, say? In 1969, he just went to the moon. Yeah. 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 But yeah, there had to be some like major misunderstanding between the two of them. Like, that. yeah, he must have been on so much coke by then. Oh, he probably had just dollar signs in his eyes, thinking like, okay, we don't have to deal with these like fucking egocentric, fussy songwriters, because this <laughs> this crazy Jewish guy from New York is gonna build us a machine that's gonna write songs, it's gonna crank out hits. What if the machine became the big star and then Barry Gordy fucked the machine? Like Diana Ross. Yeah. <laughs> he like gave the machine special attention and then the machine came out <laughs> later and said he was kind of abusive. It's like on the red carpet with the with the machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a dress on. <laughs> this has really got me thinking how nothing ever really changes. Like we're truly stuck on the wheel, you know, like Spotify's R&D budget now is just completely being shoveled into um, 
a Raymond Scott style algorithm, you know? Yeah, totally. They've always wanted to take the artists out of the art, you know? Yeah. The ideal commercial product costs nothing to make and generates infinite revenue. That's right. He was working in Barry's house on the on, on the electronic. <laughs> that rocks. He says, uh, there's a quote here from uh, Guy Costa, head of operations, chief engineer at Motown. It says, he started originally working on the Electronium out of Barry's house. They set up a room over the garages, and he worked there putting stuff together so Barry could get involved and see the process. At one point, Scott worked out of his studio. The unit never really got finalized. Ray had a real problem letting it go. It was being developed, which was a problem for Barry. He wants to, He wanted instant gratification. Eventually, his interest started to wane after a period of probably two or three years. Ray finally took the thing down from the house and kept working on it. Barry lost interest. He was off doing Diana Ross movies. Did Barry Gorey fuck the Man, machine? That's so funny. I, that's unclear. Scott uh, later said he spent 11 years and close to a million dollars developing the, uh, the Electronium. Damn. I mean, if you spend a lot of money on something and you let it live in your house and you say mm-hmm. you want gratification from it, what does that mean? It's, yeah, it's the original sex doll. That's right. Actually, the last years of his life were even more tragic than we've uh, let on so far. Where he had a stroke in 87 and he could barely like work or talk anymore. Oh, man. I mean, considering how much... Like, what a huge... I would I would say this guy had a bigger impact on contemporary music than like the the fucking Doors or oh yeah Bla- so. Black Black Flag or the Beatles you know I feel like Beatles is maybe harder to quantify. He definitely got it's to all- a lot of stuff first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always tragic to read about people who are like struggling for something that we take for granted now. Like back then to create something that was like a DAW, basically. Mm-hmm. Like the trial version of Fruity Loops, you had to like spend $30 million <laughs> in 30 years and go yes. absolutely insane. Like that happened to die in vain. Yeah, that happened to Steely in a Dan, basement. where like you read about the recording of Gaucho and how difficult it was, and it was like they were trying to create a drum machine. And, like, do multi-track recording. Like, the most basic stuff. And then, like, Mm -hmm. the people, like, burn themselves out trying to get there. Yeah. They were just a little too early. I think the the secret is... I mean, Charles, I think you said it earlier in the episode, like... But in the context of royalties. But it was maybe everything. Like, Susan Ciani, who was born... A decade, a decade and a half after him, she managed to like ride that wave. She got the crest of the wave, you know? And now she lives in a giant house on the edge of the Pacific Ocean and plays like, you know, the Sona Festival in Barcelona and Quadraphonic Sound with the same equipment she used back in 1969. Like, uh, and this guy was just, he just came through early. 
Yeah. Just ahead of his time. A little too Really much. in any kind of art or entertainment thing, it is all about like right place, right time for sure. Yeah. Something we haven't mentioned yet is have have you ever met people who grew up in the late fifties and early sixties? People who were babies during that time? They're not cool at all. Yeah, it's true. They were listening to this shit. Then they well, went then they went and listened to the doors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what happened? Like, why aren't you making electronic music? Yeah, why didn't you embrace Kraftwerk? They could have made Kraftwerk in 1963. It was right there. Yeah, maybe Jim Morrison listened to Soothing Sounds for Baby Volume 2 when he was a baby, and then he went on to make the fucking doors instead. Raymond Scott gave you all the clues, and you blew it. Yeah. Well, he needed to be soothed because his dad was away. He was on a boat in a certain bay. It was just hard at home. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's interesting. It does get at an interesting thing, though, of like, ultimately, what's the point of art between like self gratification and like influence on future generations? Because this is a guy who had zero of like the gratification beyond like the early year. I guess being on like CBS radio is like kind of gratifying, but. Yeah. All of his like endeavors in electronic music are never appreciated. He got nothing for it. But it's like influential and it's really cool. But I don't know. There's really no virtue in like doing something for future generations. You know what I mean? Like it's not like he even knows that this shit is still known today. Yeah, because the people born, you know, like in the mid 50s or whatever, like it's interesting. You listen to this. This record is more futuristic than anything that came out in 1969, and yet the generation and the generation that was 20 in 1969 has a stranglehold on like uh, modernism. You know, like <laughs> they're yeah, like totally. they're like, oh yeah, when the Doors uh, did like uh, blues in E for 10 minutes, uh, that was that was the future, and no one ever went past that. Yeah, you it know? was that kind of music for babies versus this kind of music for babies <laughs> and that kind one. Yeah, because like, like in a lot of ways, like the, if you listen to this and, the, and if you look at this guy's life and what he was trying to do and what the people around him were trying to do, the shit that was popular 10 years later, eight years later, is just so regressive. Yeah. Here, I'm on the RaymondScott.net website, and it says a bunch of artists who've sampled uh, his music over the last couple decades include Gorillaz, Devo, Rush, Gautier, uh, Jay Dilla, Fatboy Slim, Madlib, Lizzo, Q-Tip, LP, Danny Brown, like lots of stuff. I like that. I mean, maybe he gets like an afterlife in, in that, you know? The baby should sample this. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, his next album should be Soothing uh, Sounds soothing from sounds the Baby. From the Baby. Yeah. <laughs> this bass line goes. That rhythm is so unusual for the time. It's like dub. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like um it sounds like early digital dance hall like pumpkin belly. 
Yeah. Under me slang tang. That's what that's yeah. this is like pro Yeah. I had that keyboard as a baby. Strangely the enough, yeah, the MT forty. <laughs> Great keyboard. That's uh that's on a bunch of fall records too. Yeah, they're expensive now. They're like two hundred dollars. But yeah, that's got some classic rhythms on it. Yeah. You know, not every baby in the sixties grew up listening to soothing sounds for baby, but everyone that did started a band. And those bands sounded like the doors. Yeah, totally. Yeah, imagine listening to this as, as a baby and then being a young uh, young person in 1967, 68, and being like, you know what the coolest thing we could do is? <laughs> but I guess you always is... kind of rebel against what your parents try and force on you, right? So maybe yeah. that's it. Culture kind of took a nosedive after 1968. Then it came back up. But there was a lot of energy that went into nothing politically Mm -hmm. as well as artistically. Yeah, just just fucking spent into the void. What what are we listening to right now, though? This because this is not soothing. This this is really interesting. It just sounds like keyboard noises. It sounds like a, a sounds like a Geiger counter. Is this supposed to be ASMR? Did he invent that? Oh, dude, yeah, it really is a lot like ASMR. He might have invented that. It sounds I think like it's in mono right now, right? I was a, wondering if it was gonna have some weird stereo. It sounds shit. a little stereo. It sounds like oh, attacker. Maybe a little. Yeah, yeah. So Scott also invented uh, intelligent dance music, or IDM. That sounds like Apex Twin, Richard D. James' album. Yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah, this is kind of blowing my mind. What a treasure trove. (laughs) Oh, man, it's such a treat to, like, discover something you think you're going to end up making fun of and then finding a rich vein of, like, just pure enjoyment. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. The career arc is crazy to think about, like, from CBS radio to Looney Tunes factory music to this just weird... IDM rhythmic thing for babies. <laughs> like that's as good of a career arc as anyone. Like Radiohead gets praised for that exact thing of taking whatever was the current idiom and then electronicifying it. That's basically what he did of just taking like swing music and then veering into weird electronic shit. Yeah. Except for there was like literally no precedent for it and he had to build the instruments that were gonna Yeah, play yeah it. exactly. So much time went into that. Imagine if he could have just gone straight to making music. But it seems to like it seems like he enjoyed that more than the music. Like the point to him was to make those instruments over like composing. I think at that point. Yeah. I I don't feel like this really exists anymore. Like you have people inventing really cool instruments. Like I, I don't know, like uh, the Make Noise Company, like Modular Synth Company. They're they have, a, they have like a great uh, sort of philosophy towards music, but they don't produce any music themselves. And anytime, like if, I mean, think about going to see a band where the guy is like, I invented all these instruments. It's the, it's the harmonicon, you know? You'd be like, no, thank yeah. you. Fuck that. Because it, pro- like it would probably be terrible. That's what I was saying before we started recording that it's like a, 18th century or like 1800s uh, scientists where they just have like eight different fields of study and just have all kinds of weird eccentricities 
That's he's like the last generation of musician to be like that, where it's like, yeah, I'm just building all this random shit and not really caring about genre or anything, and using it for commercials and whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very eccentric, eclectic person. The commercial stuff like really separates him from like what you would call like quote unquote outsider art because it's the absolute opposite of that. Yeah, it was on CBS. Yeah, totally. In a way, it reminds me of the Temple OS guy. A guy who had schizophrenia, I think, who made his own operating system that was like, uh, it was supposed to be biblical. Like it had Bible quotes and stuff, but he, he was like a genius programmer and he programmed it from the ground up and it had auto-generated music in it. It would like generate hymns using like PC speaker tones using his own oh, software. That's, that's the only other example I can think of now of someone who's like primarily an inventor and then like makes music to show off their inventions. And that stuff wasn't very good. It's interesting, yeah. uh, theoretically, but compared to this, it's like, this is great. It rocks. I want to know like what conditions changed where we don't get people like this anymore. Cause I, I really can't think of a contemporary to, to Raymond Scott or, or Susan, I, I got to throw Susan Gianni in there cause she did basically help build the, uh, Bukla system, but like, but yeah, um, I don't know what's changed <laughs> materially that, that we're not producing people like this. I mean, there's definitely like inventors that are held up. Like, I think I was talking to you guys before we started recording about, um, like there's a Canadian hyperloop company where both of the people involved with it, it's a total grift, but both of the people involved with it claim to be inventors, but they haven't invented anything real. They've just coded shit, you know. So yeah, there there are no like real the Elon Musk thing anymore. of being more of a marketer, more of a marketer than an inventor. And then you hire engineers to do the work for you, but you just try to sell yourself as a genius, and then get people to gullible enough to invest in that. You know, the yeah. Trump thing too. You know. Yeah, yeah. This is still going too. This fucking. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised how long this one is. How many volumes were there? Three. Uh, just three. I wish there and, were like a hundred. I mean, oh, yeah. So there's one yeah, for yeah. every age? That would have been... Oh, they go man. up to yeah, like age 70. <laughs> it would Soothing be, sounds for middle-aged people. It would be like a parabola, like where, you know, the, the middle of it would be the most complex, and then it would just start declining, and then you'd return back to music for babies. Yeah, the final volume of the series is just exactly the same as volume one. Yes. And actually, maybe with that uh, comment, we should wrap it up here. I mean, this shit will go on forever, but people should check it out. Just go on YouTube and find it. Yeah, get delighted. Yeah, if you're um, a baby, if you have colic, check it out. And the next time you throw on a piece of complex electronic music, like uh, track three from Soothing Sounds for Babies, volume two, and somebody says... Hey man, that shit is for babies. You tell them, yeah, yeah, it is. Fuck you. <laughs>